Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. This podcast contains recording from the News Hour at Beaver Congress 2022. I have a number of 15-minute presentations from a series of experts in their fields. Um, I'm not going to tell you the biographies, it's all on the apps if you want to read up about them. So we're going to crack straight on, and the first speaker is Jamie Pruden, from, who's going to give us an update on medicine. Jamie. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, I think I'd just start with the fact that, you know, it's only steroids, it's somulose in medicine, so we can keep it pretty short if we want to. Um, we'll try and go to the next slide if the button would work. There we go. Uh, no acknowledgements or declarations. So, uh, as you can imagine, working at Lipbook, I've got a few areas that I'm quite interested in, equine metabolic syndrome being one of them, um, and antibiotics being slightly other one. So, we're going to highlight equine metabolic syndrome and a few of those new papers in the first part of this, and then looking anti at antibiotics in the next one. So, this was a study uh, looking at postprandial insulin responses in both insulin dysregulated and non-insulin dysregulated horses. And what's the point in this study? Um, well, we know that postprandial insulin levels are a risk of laminitis, um, so how can we try and help these cases with, with that? So if we can reduce the insulin following um, food, then we can reduce the laminitis risk. Um, and currently, a lot of the testing that we've been recommending is sort of the, the false state of a carolite or the resting or fasted um, straight away aren't all that great. They don't give you a real life picture. So, can we look at postprandial testing to highlight those insulin dysregulated horses? This was a small study looking at about 18, uh, sorry, 16 horses uh, doing a crossover randomized study and looking at feeds of differing concentrations of non-structural carbohydrates and proteins to see if one or the other was related to a worsening of the insulinemia <coughs> in these horses. What they found was that insulin dysregulated horses, unsurprisingly, had an elevated insulin was. But that the higher the non-structural carbohydrates, the higher the insulin response, about 1.7 to 3.4 fold in postprandial insulinemic horses. And usefully for testing for those in the field, you're looking at a peak value being reached between 60 and 75 minutes. So you should be testing that one to two hour after a feed. When they look at the discussion, they sort of said that historically people are advising not to feed between, oh sorry, to feed between a 10 to 12% non-structural carbohydrate in laminitis prone horses. What this study actually showed that although their diet mostly was quite low, it was these small complementary feeds that were actually spiking a significant insulin response. So this was their sort of their rough data. Um, I just repopulated it into a graph. Um, and the red is the insulin dysregulated horses, so we can see that they are consistently, whatever the feed, even the low non-structural carbohydrates on the far right, um, their insulin responses are significantly higher. What should we do about this? What does this mean for us as clinicians? How can we take this paper into the real life? What we should do is we should reevaluate our testing protocols. So we maybe shouldn't be considering just a one-off test as the only way forward. But if you've got one test, it might still be worth doing a dynamic test such as CARO. What we're seeing in reality in um, Liphook is that we should be testing individual feeds. So we should be doing hay, hard feeds and grass, all different ones rather than just one type of feed. Um, and with this study, we now know we can eat, allow the horse to eat for a, the feed or for a while on grass and then test between one to two hours later. 
What they don't try and do is summarise and try and make an assessment of what the insulin level should be um, to cause laminitis. They just say it's an increased risk. But what can we do about it? So there's another study in animal looking at how we could use straw as a way to um, reduce uh, the insulin intake, sorry, the energy intake and therefore the insulin response. So they question, could we alter the insulinemic response by adjusting the diet? But also, is it safe to feed straw to horses? What we know about straw, obviously, is it's low energy, high fiber feed. Um, previous studies have, though, shown that the response of horses to straw as a diet causes ulceration. So they wanted to rule that in or out. And so they evaluated grass forage uh, in six horses versus 50% uh, grass and wheat straw um, response in another six horses and fed it for three weeks. Each horse had a little warm-up period, and I think that's quite important if we're going to use this as clinicians, um, that they gave it, the, each of these horses some time at 25% straw. What they found, though, was that there was no change in the prevalence of ulcers. In fact, they started to decrease throughout this, the course of this study. Uh, but what they did see was that feed intake time was significantly increased, which I think we could take into our gastric ulcer treatment cases. So the same amount of food in these two cases, the grass forage was being eaten about six hours, and then the mix was being eaten in about 12 hours. So quite a significant change in the, the time of eating. Also, what they found was that the daily energy intake was lower, no surprise there, and significantly the plasma insulin levels were lower. So the graph um, from, from the paper showed the black line with the, the grass and for, uh, straw um, with a significantly lower insulin spike. So what they discussed was that 50% straw could have a positive metabolic and behavioral change in these horses, uh, and that increased feed intake, uh, the increased time of feed intake could be helpful for gastric ulcer patients. So how can we use this study? We can use it to increase our weight loss, uh, reduce insulin, therefore reduce our risk of laminitis, and it does appear to be safe to use, and we're starting to use it far more in our laminitis cases uh, in the hospital. As with both of those studies, remember they are quite small study numbers of horses, so we have to take a little pinch of salt with it all. This one, though, um, by Ed Knowles is a really significant contribution, I think, to uh, the, the literature. It's a big study uh, over a number of years, and what he wanted to look at was specifically ponies, not horses and ponies. <coughs> are there any tests that we can use to predict the risk of laminitis in, in those ponies? What he did was a prospective cohort study, so he really did look over a number of years, and compared to the other two papers, it has a lot more weight to it. So he looked at 374 ponies enrolled in a study um, over a four-year period, although there was another year of follow-up following that first four years. All of them had to be ponies, and they all had to have no laminitis. So we're starting from a one-set one place and not also being treated for PPID at the time. Throughout the study, he looked at a huge number of variables from the type of grass being fed, the type of forages, um, exercise, the way horses were treated, and tried to sort of really simmer it down to some useful information. And there's a lot in the paper, which if you read all the supplementary data, is very interesting, but probably not all that useful for real life. What he found in this group of ponies, in the 400-odd ponies, was that the incidence of laminitis in a non-laminitic group was about 48 cases per 100 pony years. So a small number, but he had done the power calculations to make sure that that was enough. Unsurprisingly, found that summer incidence of laminitis was three times that um, of the winter cases. And significantly for the testing, insulin as a resting was 
higher at T60, so at um, 60 minutes post-feeding, and also T0, so at the start of any feeding protocol, and had a high correlation with primary laminitis risk. Also, we found that adiponectin and hoof divergence were also significant markers, so we can use adiponectin as another um, laboratory marker for insulin uh, laminitis risk. So these were the values that he brought out of his study, and I think they are quite useful to, to extrapolate and use in real life. And each of these risk categories is based on a centile of horses that were going to get laminitis or not. And I think this is genuinely a number that we can take away, and you can say to your owner, with, if you're in the high category, you're at significant increased risk of laminitis. Um, whereas if you're in the low, you've got hopefully a very low risk of laminitis. Again, these guys, uh, Ed talks about historical advice of the 10 to 12% non-structural carbohydrates. And I do think that still stands true, and we should be aiming for that in the general feed. But again, he highlights that complementary small feeds have a significant effect. So we've got to be careful with the whole diet in these horses or in these ponies. The, th the one big significant thing that I think we've got to just keep remembering about this study is that it only looked at ponies um, and there was no research on horses. So we might be able to sort of say, okay, these are the numbers that we've got. We can maybe use them, um, but also you've just got to be slightly careful with it. It does provide useful guidance for ponies and the risk of laminitis, and therefore guide us as to whatever, whether it's medical, dietary, environmental um, treatments that we might undertake in those cases. So that's sort of the EMS um, laminitis side of things that I, I wanted to highlight. There have been lots of other papers out there on those, on those topics, but they were sort of the three significant ones that I think add a little bit to our ability to treat. So the next session section is going to be on antimicrobials, and it's, these aren't going to change the way we treat. They aren't going to change how we can really modify um, our, our ideas. And there were some interesting papers being shown up there a moment ago about antibiotics in, in foals, and there are lots of really useful clinical papers out there. But what these tried to do was to highlight to us as clinicians what we are doing. Are we helping the um, antimicrobial resistance patterns out there, or are we actually making them worse? So this first one was looking at whether or not our prescribing techniques are changing or what they are in the equine industry. So we know that AMI antimicrobial resistance is an increasing threat to both human and animal health, um, and we'll see that really highlighted in the next paper. And we've got to understand how we as equine clinicians can affect that and also to analyze our monitoring techniques. And I think this paper and the next one really highlight that we should be auditing ourselves consistently. So this paper looked at 264 online questionnaires, uh, 231 from the UK, and about 87%, there's lots of words here, I'm sorry, it's the only way I could present it, but 87% uh, of those worked with horses alone. 54% had antimicrobial policies, 54 did not perform any environmental studies, and 53 did not audit any of their antimicrobial use. I think the environmental study is slightly biased because lots of these were clinicians in, on the road rather than hospital settings. So very unlikely to be doing environmental studies. What they found was that potentiated sulfonamides were the most used, which is fantastic. I think it's a, there's lots of studies out there showing there's very little resistance being gained uh, in the use of TMPS. So I think we are fairly safe currently in our TMPS use. Slightly more concerningly, I would say, is that 44% of clinicians used enrofloxacin, and even worse is 66% used third or fourth generation cephalosporins. 
And we, as an example at Liphook, instigated mortality and morbidity rounds sort of about eight years ago. And we have now got our use in Liphook Equine Hospital down to maybe one or two cases a month maximum of either of these antibiotics uh, in a busy hospital setting. Slightly concerningly as well, 48% of people were using antibiotics in pre-clean surgeries, and then 24% was prescribing long-term antibiotics post-clean surgeries. So that's a group that we're, we're really working on and um, doing a lot to try and change that as well. So what they did say, though, was that there is an in, a decreasing use of antibiotics compared to the 2009 study that was performed. So it's fantastic. I think we as a group are doing very well, especially compared to a lot of the human data, which isn't quite stacking up. What really worried me was that 7.4% of the respondents said their primary antibiotic of choice was cephalosporins. And that should never happen. It doesn't matter what part of our industry we're in. There's no need for that. <coughs> But thankfully, nearly 50% said they are using culture and sensitivity to dictate their antibiotic cho choices. They did find that about 16% of people came across MRSA, which is probably a little bit lower than other studies where about 50% of, say, hospitalized equine patients have MRSA. 13% came across ESBL um, enterobacteries, um, and 42% had experienced MDRs all round. But what does that mean? Um, yes, yeah, so sorry, yeah, we should be auditing. What they said was those who had audited in place used less of the protected antibiotics. From a resistance point of view, um, we really need to be surveilling, surveillance sorry, of our uses to understand how much AMR there is and how we might reduce the risk in all of our settings. Analysis, again, is a way of auditing AMR, and it is important, and it's something now we at Liphook are starting to really look at and pulling in all of that data so we know exactly what's going on. And then also this is a way to describe the current AMR that's going on out there. They looked at six different laboratories, 6,000-odd uh, samples, and grouped into various different groups from resistant to one or two classes, which isn't all that exciting, to multi-drug to extensively drug-resistant, and then resistant to highly, uh, highest priority critical antibiotics, such as cephalosporins and enrofloxacins. In that study, they found that 37% of E. coli were MDRs, 25% of staphs were MDRs, and really worryingly, 30% of enterococcuses had no viable treatment option at all in the UK. And so that's a significant group of these ones that we just have no choice but to let them, the body do its job. Referrals, unsurprisingly, had a much higher level of MDRs than first opinion. Um, so we, we are experiencing the, the nosocomial side of that um, disease process. And again, this fits with what they were finding. MDRs were much higher in surgical site, catheter-related problems, orthopedic infections. So all of the things that we're doing in hospitals were much higher risk of MDR. What can we do? I don't think there's anything that significantly we have to change in our life at the moment to say, okay, we'll, we'll stop this problem by doing X, Y, or Z. But we should continue audit, perform environmental studies if you are working in hospitals so we know what we're dealing with in each of our hospitals and avoid the critical antibiotics. So that's it. Um, I think there are maybe a few more things in somulose and steroids in equine medicine, um, and I hope I've highlighted a couple of those. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jamie. Um, Jamie has to disappear off to a different session now, so thank you. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal.
forward slash evj.